0: Numbers fifteen. We will uh, cover the whole chapter uh, tonight, but as we begin, I want to just read from verse thirty-two down to uh, forty-one, one of the narrative uh, portions, and then this last section on the tassels. Of course, as well. See, in a moment, this begins with some instructions about sacrifices and how to to deal with and atone for certain kinds of sins. And and then, as I said, we're going to pick up by reading from verse 32 down to 41. So Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 32, we read, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. and Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all My commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we've seen throughout the book of Numbers and as we again see here, you are a God who is both slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who is faithful to His Word, who will keep His Word to all generations, but you are also a God of justice and who will not let the guilty go unpunished. And we see this working itself out again in this particular chapter. We see Your grace continuing on to the people of Israel even after they have rebelled against You. And we we see You providing for them and providing atonement for their sins. And yet we also see what happens to a person when they reject Your covenant. So Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we consider what is going on in Numbers 15, that you would teach us, that you would show us as well that even though the outward forms of the covenants may have changed, you are still the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And I pray that we would Heed your word and heed the warning and heed the promises that are there. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Jennifer Buck, who some of you may know, she's the wife of Tom Buck, who's a pastor in Texas, wrote an article back in April called A Story of Restorative Grace. It was about the early struggles in her and Tom's marriage early on, and particularly Tom's anger management issues. They've now been married around 35 years, and the Lord in His grace put people in both of their lives to give them godly counsel and Led Tom in particular to repentance. But as she was telling their story, she wrote about one of the moments in their marriage that was really a kind of wake up call for Tom. Jennifer had suffered a miscarriage, and Tom's anger had continued to get worse somewhere around the fourth year of their marriage. And she wrote here, she said, things finally came to a head one afternoon when I playfully rested a cold Coke can on Tom's neck. You know how jolting that can be. What is it? But she said they came to a head when when she had done that. She says he reacted in a quick flash of anger, He grabbed my hand and slapped me on the wrist. Both of us were stunned. His anger had reached a new level. He hit her. It now got physical. She says, this scared me. I knew if something was not done, this had the potential for further escalation And I would not be able to stay, of course, because it wouldn't be safe if things continued to go that way. She says, I learned later that it had scared him too. It was this moment, or it was at this moment, that Tom realized he needed help. There are, of course, uh, sometimes where uh, even Christians... And become so entangled in sin that they sink into deep and dark abysses of ungodliness and rebellion, and their sin can affect others. Maybe the case that you've gone through something like this before. I know I certainly have as well. But when the blinders are removed, when you finally see the utter disgusting nature of your sin and the consequences that it has brought, it can be stunning. You're finally seeing what's been going on and you're you're jolted, you're shocked. Perhaps others have have been seeing it and have been wondering, when are you going to wake up? But for you, it's like the blinders have been removed. And it was like this for Tom. What he did in this moment scared him because he was finally seeing the consequences of his brewing and ever-increasing sin. And sometimes when this happens, you can wonder, you know, have I sinned so badly that now I'm just beyond redemption? Have things become so dark in my own heart that I couldn't see what was so obviously sin? Have I been so hardened beyond the point of salvation? Has my blindness been such that I've rebelled so greatly that there's no hope at all? And has my sin rendered the promises of God now void for me? Well, at the end of Numbers 14, Israel is really in this kind of situation. They've been brought out of Egypt. By the clear work of God. By the saving hand of God. They've seen His signs. They've seen His wonders, His miracles. They've seen His power on Mount Sinai. They've seen a a visible presence of God on Sinai. They've received a priesthood that would mediate the presence of God among them. They've received promises stretching all the way back to their ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises that God was going to bring them into the land just as He had said He would do those hundreds of years ago. And despite all of the goodness of the Lord, What have we seen? We have seen them rebel. They sent spies into the land who returned only to scare and discourage the people from entering into the land that God clearly said He was giving them. They persuaded the people to reject the Word of God and reject His promises. And then, when judgment came, they decided to enter the land contrary to the word of God that told them that almost none of that generation, with just a couple of exceptions, would enter. So God pronounces a judgment against them and says, you're not going to enter, do not enter, and then they sin again by trying to enter. They disobeyed yet again And they went to war with the Amalekites and the Canaanites, even though Moses said God was not with them. And chapter 14 ends on a note of utter defeat. They've had to flee because they were being chased away by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And you can just picture this scene of defeat. The soldiers walking back and beaten and bruised and cut up. and Some of them having to perhaps carry the dead back with them. And and others mortally wounded and missing limbs. It's just, it's total defeat. And they were chased away. And all of the camp had to flee. It's just dark the consequences of their sin and their repeated rejection of the word of god have brought death to them and it's not hard to imagine now that they now that they know that god was not among them it, it's not hard to imagine the people of israel wondering has god cast us off forever is he now no longer with us from here on out? Has he determined to no longer keep his promises to Israel? And has he done so because of our great sin? Well, this is where Numbers 15 then comes as the answer to their sin. And sometimes it can be it can be hard to figure out why a particular story or a passage is placed where it is. Why in the midst of this narrative in Numbers do we come across these passages that are now dealing with sacrifices? And the reason it fits here, in addition to some other connections that we'll see uh, later in the passage, is because God here is confirming to His people that He will continue to keep His Word. The nation's sin has not rendered the promises that He has made to them and the promises that He has made to their ancestors void. He will keep His Word, and He will provide them with a sacrificial system by which their sins as a nation and their sins as individuals can be atoned for and they can be purified. So, so what, what is the, the answer to their sin? How is it the case that, that they as a people can be reconciled to God after sinning so Greatly Well, it has to come through sacrifice. They need sacrifice in response to their rebellion, which is why here we have a bit of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, making its way into the book of Numbers here. Now, this chapter in particular can be divided into four sections. The first section, which is about sacrifices and burnt offerings and and other offerings that are to accompany these, is in verses 1 to 21. And as we'll see in a moment, it begins and ends with a promise. And then the second section, verses 22 to 31, is mostly about how to handle unintentional sins So there is some overlap even in this section in verses 30 to 31 with the section that follows about a high-handed intentional sin. And then the third section, which is again closely connected to this second one, shows what happens when someone disregards the covenant completely. And then the final section is about how the people can guard themselves from committing sin to begin with. So let's look at each one of these in turn. First of all, I want you to notice with me in the first section that that it begins and ends with a promise. It's an answer of grace to the defeat at the end of chapter 14. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit which I am giving you. And then look down at the end of this section in verses 17 and 18. Again, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you. You can see here that despite Israel's rebellion, God is not going to revoke His promises to the nation altogether. The first generation, of course, will not enter the land. And even Moses... As the the book continues, Moses himself is not going to enter into the promised land. But God is still going to make good on his word to Israel as a nation. The second generation will enter. The Israelite parents can can rest assured, can, can hope in the fact that even though in Their lives, rightly so, their lives are going to be very difficult for the next 40 or so years in the wilderness. But even though this is the case, it's going to be much better for their children. They can hope in the future for their their own children. They can hope in the faithfulness of God because He will bring the people of Israel into the land. And not only will He bring them into the land, but the land is going to flourish. This is not going to be some barren wasteland. This is not going to be the wilderness anymore. This is going to be a paradise on earth. It's going to provide for them according to the sovereign hand of God and provide for them with more than they've ever had before. And this is what's communicated by the laws about sacrifices here. In the first several chapters of Leviticus, what kinds of sacrifices can be offered as burnt offerings and peace offerings is outlined. And and Numbers 15 is speaking about those same kinds of offerings in the beginning of Leviticus, but here something also is added. With every single offering, whether that's the food offerings or the burnt offerings, the sacrifices or the free will offerings, the people of Israel are being commanded to add to these offerings an offering of flour, of oil, and of wine, a drink offering. So if they brought, for example, a lamb for an offering, They're commanded also that they need to bring about one and a half liters of flour, about a half of a liter of oil, and half a liter of wine. If they bring a ram for an offering, the the flour and the oil and the wine that they need to bring essentially doubles. And then if they bring a bull for an offering, it essentially triples. Triples. And in an agrarian society, all of these various offerings represented some aspect of the provisions from the land. You had the animals, the grain, the oil, and the wine and drink, all provided to them from the land and thus all provided to them from the blessings of God. They're being required to make significant contributions to the Lord. They're they're being commanded to contribute the first fruits of everything they had. And the point is not that these offerings are going to become some kind of overwhelming burden for them that effectively robs them of all of their food and and drink. No, the, the point is that God is going to so bless them in the land that they're going to have an abundance. And a portion of that abundance will be offered as an act of worship to God. So again, he's he's adding these additional offerings to, in essence, assure them that the land is going to be flowing with milk and honey. And this is going to be a sort of celebration of all that the land through me is providing you. It's really quite a stunning promise that comes on the heels of such a great disaster. But it is to remind them of the graciousness of God that even though the people have sinned, the people will be blessed because of the Word of God. I think it's a great reminder to us as well who stumble and fall and sin in many ways. It's a reminder that because of the work of Christ and the Word of God, even our sins will not nullify the promises of God. His keeping power, His The surety of His Word does not ultimately depend upon the strength of our own convictions and the strength of our own hearts and our ever-changing, fickled wills. No, it is because of the sacrifice of Christ and the promises of God that He will ultimately keep us and bring us into the land and cause the land to flourish for His people. Now, in the second section, we have a set of laws about how the nation as a whole and how individuals, including the stranger and the sojourner that lives among them, we have some laws about how all of these people and categories of people are to make atonement for their sins and receive forgiveness when they have sinned unintentionally. And this is contrasted with what happens to someone who sins, as verse 30 says, with a high hand. Intentionally. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here for the sake just of clarification that unintentional sins does not only mean that you're totally aware of what happened. It's not not like, oops, I committed adultery. I don't know how that happened. We're not just talking about like totally oblivious. That's included. Sins of omission that you you weren't even aware of is, is included here. But that's not only what unintentional sins is referring to. Certainly with all of the regulations that were in place. A person could have forgotten a particular commandment and sinned unintentionally in that way. But unintentional sins does not exclusively mean sins where you're just completely oblivious to the fact that you're sinning or have sinned. In fact, The same phrasing is used at the end of the book of Numbers in chapter 35 to distinguish the punishment that is to be given to someone who is a murderer and someone who is more so considered a manslayer, who's committed manslaughter. And among the several descriptions of a murderer, one of the things that makes him a murderer per verse 20 of chapter 35 is the fact that he hated the person that he murdered, murdered Excuse me, and that he lied in wait for them. He planned it. He was premeditating it. He was determining to do this his intention is to kill someone and that kind of person, Numbers 35 says, is to be put to death. The death penalty. The manslayer, however, somebody who's committed manslaughter, is certainly not free from guilt. He may have actually killed someone and done so in something like a brawl. And of course, if he's brawling and kills kill someone, it's, it's pretty good evidence of the fact that good and godly behavior was not being performed by this man. He's culpable, in other words. But because he didn't plan it, because it was perhaps in the heat of a moment and, and it went way too far, he will face punishment by being banished to a city of refuge from which he can never depart until the, the high priest dies. And if he does, he can be put to death. Right, So it's like a, a, a prison, house arrest in a city of refuge. He will be punished for it, but he will not be put to death. There's a distinction. And it's noteworthy that the manslayer is described in chapter 35, verse 11 as someone who kills a person without intent. It's the same phrasing that we find in Numbers 15. It's sinning unintentionally. There's certainly culpability there. There's certainly the fact that when you're in a fight with somebody, you know you're doing something wrong. But it's not premeditated. It's not planned. It's not a an open, flagrant determination to cast off all moral restraint. So The point is that unintentional sins also encompasses sins that are committed where you know in your conscience, I shouldn't be doing this, and yet you're overtaken by temptation. But then you're grieved, and you repent, The nation here is grieved and the nation repents and God prescribes what is to be done in repentance. The whole nation of Israel should offer a bull and a male goat along with a grain offering and a drink offering and then the high priest will offer it up as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Or an individual who has sinned unintentionally will offer a female goat that's a year old and the high priest will offer this up for an atonement for their sins. And so sin must be dealt with through sacrifice and the Lord here is outlining how those sacrifices are to be offered and for what they're to be offered for. Now, this is very different from what happens when someone sins with a high hand, as verse 30 says. This kind of person is to be put to death. And in the third section, verses 32 to 36, we have an example of this kind of high-handed sinning in the man who breaks the Sabbath. So if you look at verse 32, verse 32 says, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And then as the passage continues, what we find is that the man is basically then taken into custody. The people ask what they're supposed to do with him. And the Lord commands that the man be put to death by being stoned with stones. Now, a very superficial reading of this text would look at this story and would conclude, well, that's a little extreme. It's a little over the top here. A guy is gathering sticks, and he receives the death penalty. That sounds a little barbaric, Not much for the punishment meeting the crime. But I want you to remember that this story is put here as an example of what high-handed sinning looks like. What's entailed here. When this man is gathering sticks, what you are supposed to understand is that this is not a man who just wants to build a fire one day. He's just trying to warm his hands. This is a man who is rejecting the covenant of God and the law of God altogether. He's rejecting Yahweh. The Sabbath was one of the most important signs of the whole old covenant. One of the reasons it was given to them was for them to remember what God had done for them in saving them. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, for example, in verse 12 to 15, the Lord commands the people to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they are to, quote, remember that they were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord their God brought them out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And then verse 15 says, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is a day, in other words, that is inseparably linked to the saving works of God on behalf of Israel and to the entire covenant that God entered into with the nation at Sinai. And so, what's going on with this man in Numbers 15 is not that he just decided to gather some sticks and didn't really see anything wrong with it. What's going on is that this man is saying, I don't want anything to do with Yahweh. I'm done with him. I don't believe any of this. I don't care about his covenant, I don't care about his laws. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and while everyone else is resting on the Sabbath day, I'm going to go about my own business, break His law, and gather sticks for my own sake. He is, in other words, rejecting the whole law of God. He's rejecting the covenant, and as a consequence or as an implication... He's rejecting the Lord, and as a consequence, he is to be put to death. He is an Israelite who's rejecting the Lord, and now that he's outside of the covenant, he is to be stoned. Now, this is the same in the new covenant, in an eschatological sense. If you reject the covenant of God, inaugurated by the blood of Christ, you stand under the death penalty. That is your due. This, in fact, is the exact argument that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 10. You'll remember that in the book of Hebrews, the author is warning these Christians against turning away from Christ altogether. He's warning them against renouncing the new covenant. They are suffering. They are being persecuted. And as a result, they are being tempted to just throw in the towel completely and say, I'm done with all of this. He knows that some have already fallen away and He knows that others are seriously contemplating renouncing Christ and returning back to their ways of Judaism in which is found no salvation. And in the context of exhorting them to persevere, he warns them in Hebrews 10. And Beginning in verse 28, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what the Sabbath breaker's doing. He's setting aside the whole law. Rejecting God altogether. And then he goes on in verse 29. And he says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the One who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Now what could be worse than the death penalty? Well, there is something worse. Do not fear those who only can kill the body but fear Him who can cast both body and soul into hell. There is something worse that the author of Hebrews is warning against. Eternal death. And he's he's saying to these Christians, do not abandon Christ. Do not abandon the covenant if they renounce Christ, if they spurn His covenant, there is no sacrifice for them. And what remains is only the expectation of a fearful judgment. And he warns it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. And so he exhorts them in verses 35 to 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's not a coincidence either. All throughout the, the book of Hebrews, the author is constantly drawing on the stories of Israel in the wilderness and warning them not to rebel as they did at Meribah. So like this Sabbath breaker, if we reject God's covenant, if we sin deliberately in this way. We we wipe our hands with it. Done with Christ. Clean of all of this. The punishment is death. But if we repent, and if we turn back to God, there is an eternal sacrifice that will atone for all of our sins. Now this leads us lastly to the fourth section of the chapter which provides for the people a kind of preventative measure. It's much better if you just don't sin at all and you don't need to sacrifice. So there's, there's a kind of preventative measure that's given here. The Lord gives them something to do and to have by which they will be reminded not to turn from His commandments. In verses 37 to 41, the Lord commands Moses to instruct the people to make tassels for the corners of their garments and to string within those tassels little blue cords. Orthodox Jews actually still do this today. And these tassels were to serve as a visual reminder for the people to remember and to obey the commandments of God in all circumstances. We've seen before, of course, how the entire sacrificial system and the, the tabernacle and the arrangement of the camp and the ark and the feast and the sabbaths, all of these various structures and items and events were intended to create for the people of Israel a very visual society where everything in Israel would remind and point the people constantly to the Lord. And it's the same here with these tassels. And I just want to point out two things here about these tassels as we close. One is that the tassels, again, were to include a blue cord in them. And this, of course, is something we've we've seen before. It is blue color. The curtains in the tabernacle were partly made of blue linen along with purple. The priestly robe on the ephod was made of blue. The items that were to be covered in the holy place when the people set out were to be covered, you'll remember, by a a blue cloth, depending on what they were, maybe other cloths, but a blue cloth. And now the people are commanded to make blue-colored tassels. And I think it's a reminder that they all here are a priestly people. They are, as, as Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 says, they are all a, a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. And here again in numbers 15 verse 40, the Lord gives them the tassels to remind them to, to do His commandments and to be holy to their God. It's like you know you're, you're wondering, should we go in the land? And your heart's inclined not to. You're, you're supposed to pick up these tassels and remember. Part of the kingdom of priests. Right? And our God goes before us. And so, as daunting as it may seem, we're we're going to obey. So there's this priestly idea here that's connected with the tassels, but notice also what is said in verse 39. And here's where we find one of the more explicit connections with chapter 14. There's there's a bunch of plays on words and, and phrases throughout the chapter that connects it to chapter 14, but notice here. The Lord says through Moses, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart. And if you look down, if you've got an ESV, you look down at the bottom of the page, the ESV points out that this is the same word used throughout chapter 14 for spying out the land. The tassels are to remind the people that they are not to spy out after their own hearts and their own eyes which they are inclined to whore after. In other words, what they are inclined to do in their spying out is to do only what their hearts want to do. What their hearts deem to be acceptable. When they went into the land to spy it out, their their hearts told them, don't go there. The, The people who are there are too great. They're giants. They'll destroy you. You will die. Return to Egypt. Egypt is better. Yahweh has brought you here only to kill you. Yahweh will not deliver you. That's what their hearts are telling them. They're inclined to follow their own hearts. And the Lord is saying to them, don't do that when you look in the land and when you look out into the world and you're tempted to eat the fruit of the world and reject my word i want you to look down at your blue tassels not in your heart and when you see those i want you to remember my commandments which with those commandments comes his promises. I want you to remember my word. And you trust that. You don't trust your heart. And I will bless you and I will keep you. I think we need these reminders as well. When we are tempted to turn from God and listen to the flesh and follow after our own heart. What do we do? How are we supposed to fight that kind of temptation? Well, we do something very similar. We return to the Word of God. We do what Jesus modeled for us to do as He Himself was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. He turns to fight the temptation to the Word of God. He's, he's meditating on it. He's remembering it. He's speaking it to Himself. It's the very same thing. It's, the Word of God is for us to be these kinds of tassels. Our hearts are inclining us towards sin and we are to look to His Word. It's very interesting that that though the outward forms have changed between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the path of faithfulness is essentially the same. Remember the Word of God. Remember God. Remember His promises. Remember what is on the horizon. What He has promised to give you. You look to Him. You remain faithful to Him. You, As the author of Hebrews puts it, you endure. By the grace of God, of course. And He will bless you. And He will keep you. And He will bring you into the promised land where you will flourish. And there will be an abundance of grain, an abundance of drink. And He will bless His people. So, differences in form, uh, but very much essentially the same in terms of following and obeying the Lord. So let's go to the Lord and ask blessings on His Word. Father, throughout Your Word, you, You teach us to look the examples of the people of Israel in the wilderness and to not fall into the same temptations and the same sins that they, that they fell into. That They are examples, at least that first generation are examples of what happens if we spurn you and spurn your covenant. That if we reject your word, reject Christ, reject your sacrifice, there there is no sacrifice for our sins, and there remains only a fearful expectation of judgment. And so I I pray, Lord, that, that we would be a people who, from renewed hearts, would be always returning to the word. And fixing our gaze upon the promises that you have made, even when it appears that those promises are failing, that we would ultimately trust in you and not in the uh, our own fickle hearts. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, stand.